Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 118, Fear Can Make You Kind. This week we're discussing series 8, episode 4 of Doctor Who, Listen, and season 2, episode 7 of Angel, Darla. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. Listen. Okay. Listen. Yeah. Yes? No. Okay. No. All right. There's <laughs> nothing to hear because we're not talking. So we have to talk. So you Well, can there's nothing because there's nothing there. For listen. Us, but... As far as you know. As far as I know. What, what if How would we there's know? something hiding perfectly right behind you? But what if there's not, there are never anything there? This is the, the question. Anyway, okay. We well, yeah. I have production notes that I want to <laughs> say before we start um, getting into the metaphysics of the episode. But um, I want to just mention a, a couple things. Uh, so this is like a Moffat episode. Um, and Moffat said before this episode aired that he says, this is a complete departure for me in terms of Doctor Who. It's the story of a date and the doctor having what appears to be a minor nervous breakdown. So kind of interesting way to, you know, uh, set up the episode for the audience. Um, and I think I also mentioned to you that um, I noted and other people have noted that this is in some ways kind of like the return of what I call like the Moffat prestige piece, you know, mm. which was kind of, I think, during the Davies era his thing, you know, like he'd come in once a year and do the really like, you know, psychological, well-crafted, you know, kind of, you're always waiting for the big Moffat episode. Um, and I feel like since he took over the show, he, that's a luxury he doesn't really have anymore because, um, maybe just, you know, I mean, maybe his style's changed, maybe he wants to do different things, but I think even just the the responsibilities of showrunner that like mm -hmm. he has to do things like write premieres and finales and Christmas episodes sure you know so yeah. and maybe other people get to do the kind of special you know prestige piece like a Neil Gaiman or right. you know some of these other kind of big name writers that they've had on um, and so I feel like really if you kind of think about it everything he's written since he took over has been kind of that kind of either one of those big important episodes or at least one that was important, you know, in the overall arc, like maybe a river song episode or, you know, something that kind of, you know, had some sort of mythological significance. Mm. And not that this doesn't have, obviously there's a lot of mythology in this episode, but I also feel that it's more of a standalone, you know, it kind of, sure. um, it's more that kind of getting back to the the psychological thriller kind of thing that he used to do before, and it's a little more intimate. Um, and and I think um, just in terms of it being the prestige piece, getting back to you know his episodes as like the highlight of a season. So this was um, very well received. Um, so they just announced the Hugo's. Uh, not that long ago, like a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, this episode was nominated. It didn't win. Orphan Black won for the first time. Um, but it was nominated. And 
This was also the first Doctor Who episode to ever to be nominated for the Bram Stoker Award as well. Um, so that's kind of a new territory. Um, and this is, you know, popular among the fans too. Um, Doctor Who TV did a 10th anniversary poll of all of the new series. And this came in at number nine out of, you know, the 97 stories. So it was definitely high. Um, Peter Capaldi singled this out as his favorite of the season. And Paul Cornell said, in his opinion, it might be the best Doctor Who story ever. So, you know. That's quite high praise. It's quite a, quite a bold claim. Um, so, anyway, not to put any pressure on the episode, but uh, <laughs> right. let's talk about it. So, uh, where would you like to start? Well... I mean, we were kind of hinting at it right in the beginning, but let's let's yeah. start with the sort of metaphysical, situational, uh, okay, you know, big idea stuff. Because I feel mm -hmm. like, well, we can talk about the effect of it, um, but we mm -hmm. certainly get at at the beginning we get the doctor uh, with his you know question, you know, why do we talk mm -hmm. out loud when we know we're alone? And then, you know, conjecture, maybe because we're not. And so that, mm. of course, sets up the entire episode, right? It becomes the, uh, you know, when... It, it, interesting, because, like, in a way, listen, it's mm. not quite as, uh, you know, severe as, like, don't blink, don't even mm. blink. But it has that same sort of tone, right? It's that, you know, yeah. uh, imperative, mm -hmm. you know, do this thing or there's something that might happen which you don't want right. to happen or which you, you know, you don't know about or something like that. So, again, I don't think it's quite the same as Don't Blink, but there is that sort of same imperative idea to it. But then also, yeah. um, you know, the whole you know, why do we talk out loud when we know we're alone? And so that's interesting on a couple of levels. One, because we know that the doctor always talks out loud mm -hmm. to whoever or nobody, you know, mm -hmm. that might be nearby. So like even just ignoring the fact that everybody talks to themselves sometimes, right. um, the, you know, there's particular significance because also then you have the, is this an audience participate? Like, is there, is there a breaking right, right. of the fourth wall going on here? Kind of again, right. like in blink where you have like at the end, you know, there's sort of that hint of like, was the doctor sort of talking to us all along with all the statues that are in sort of the real world, you know, right. and, and the looking out of the TV, like kind of the, you know, the diegetic screen there. Is it, is he looking out of the TV to Sally Sparrow or is he looking out of the TV to us? You to know, us, right. um, so you get that same sort of thing here where like the doctor's alone, yeah. but is he really alone because we're there right. watching him? In a sense, TV characters are never really alone. Right. There's always somebody. And I think you get that with all the stuff about, you know, these silent companions who follow you and listen in and hide perfectly, but they know what you're saying. Like, in a sense, does that make the audience like the monster of the yeah, episode. Yeah, well, you know? <laughs> right, and that's, right, exactly. That's where I was kind of going with that. So, yeah, like, then it, like, the audience is participating, but then to what extent? Like, is it, 
you know, are we alone? Because, you know, maybe I'm sitting at home by myself watching TV, but then does that make me alone? And am I like not talking to myself, but you know, like there's this interaction with a thing that's not really there, but is there mm. kind of thing too. So I don't know. There's like all these different sort of levels that you can kind of look at it um, on. Um, so that sets up the episode. Um, and of course, then we're in, in different ways. We're sort of begged uh, to sort of ponder that question, you know, throughout, mm-hmm. like, it, you know, when, uh, you know, the doctor, like, you know, he talks to Clara and it's like, Oh, you know, why do we, <clears throat> you know, you know, what happens when we talk you know, sometimes you talk to yourself, what if you're not, you know, what if it's not you you're talking to, what if there's something else? And there's, there's kind of this mm-hmm. weird, like, like maybe we know there's a presence in the room, but we, it, we know it on like a subconscious level, not a conscious level. So, you know, the talking right. is happening and we sort of, you know, our mind knows it's happening, but we don't sort of realize it. Um, and then, you know, he's talking to, uh, like, the guy there at the, the you know, uh, foster home or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and talking that sort of thing. And I love that, like, <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, you know, what, what if your coffee cup isn't there? Or, like, you find yourself <laughs> talking to yourself. And then, like, it's the doctor who, like, takes he the coffee steals cup. The coffee and, cup. Like, well, that's something about, like, <laughs> that's something about, um, it seems like, that seems to me a... a if we're getting to know the 12th doctor, that seems like a definitively 12th doctor moment that he would, you know, raise this sort of deep question, you know, and then you find out he's really a troll. Like he's kind of like there to sort of, yes, he has these questions, but also there's a part of him that just wants to sort of mess with this guy. Um, You know, and not that the question of, you know, what happens when you don't remember things isn't, interesting or important but you know he's he has this kind of troublemaking thing about him that he'll specifically raise that question and then steal the cup just to like completely right you know um and another thing too i wanted to mention with this doctor is that that question answer kind of socratic dialogue that he always has you know and we have him like constantly writing on everything with chalkboards. So you have this sort of like academic doctor who, you know, um, you know, isn't necessarily more curious than the other doctors, but is maybe a bit more, you know, uh, scientific in his way of going about things that he does question and answer and research and take notes and all these sorts of things. So, right. Right. Um, I mean, so, on the line too, with the kind of multiple layers of reading things, um, I like how it's it's it breaks the fourth wall enough to make you kind of consider that you know maybe the audience is involved, maybe this is a reference to us listening in, but it's also sort of universal enough that you don't have to read it that way. Like it's not. Mm-hmm it's not a very severe breaking of the fourth wall because we do pretty much all talk to ourselves. I mean, I think most people can relate to that, you know, having realizing, you know, when you're sort of in the middle of something and, you know, you kind of realize, Oh, I am sort of mumbling, you know, or even speaking out loud. So 
it, it's, I think it's a real enough experience that, you know, this actually could just be, it, it causes me to question, why do I talk about, you know, why do I talk out loud when I know there's nobody else here, you know? Um, and it kind of brings up another thing, which I like about this episode, which is um, how every single thing, like with the coffee cup, everything that happens in this episode, you can explain away, I'll say rationally, meaning not with, you know, this could be a monsterless episode. Like, and I think it's very carefully crafted that way, that every single thing, you know, well, the, you know, the chalk is missing. Well, he could have dropped it. You know, the cup is missing. Well, he took it away, you know, and there's banging outside the wall. Well, it could just be the pipes cooling. And, you know, even down to the one time you actually see something, which is, you know, the, the figure in the bedspread, it could, Clara even says, that could have just been another kid in a bedspread, you know, Um, which maybe we are inclined to think probably not, but still, you don't know, it could be, you know? And I feel like that's a pretty unique approach that I can't think of any other episode, certainly not in the new series where there is no real monster, or at least potentially there's no, monster that you can just explain this away as just the doctor freaking out over nothing (laughs) um which i think is kind of uh quite unique and i mean we'll get to the end you know at the end but i think kind of plays into it's a very good you know what this episode yeah it's good organization i know but um this idea of you know the episode being about the you know the kind of fear itself idea and and you know what are you afraid of probably my own shadow and all these things of you know coming back to clara saying what if there really weren't any monsters what if you know and that that might even be a more terrifying idea mm-hmm. of there being this kind of nothingness so anyway um not to jump ahead and talk through the episode but I like how every single thing you can kind of say, well, there is this hidden monster, or you can say, you can explain it away with some other sort of mundane rationalization. Sure. Sure. So. Okay. Let's let, (laughs) yeah. Well, so, all right. So let's, Let's talk about about Claire because, like, I I feel like now that we've set up this situation, though, like, mm-hmm. we do have we we get the doctor. Oh, and well, and we didn't mention. I mean, we'll talk about him in a moment, but you know, young Rupert, of course, we're sort of again, yeah. you know, talking about like, you know, kids in bed, and are you are you alone? Is there a monster in your closet? Is there a monster under your mm-hmm. bed? Um, which you know, again, brings up sort of other episodes um not so much for me blink uh mm-hmm. this time around um but more uh well too for me i thought of um you know in in that whole thing is uh silence in the library 
uh, mm-hmm. where it's like, don't go into the shadows because you don't know what else uh-huh. could sort of be there. Right. Um, and uh, Bashta Narada, right? Is it, did I, yes. Did I, okay, uh-huh. yeah, I, I was trying to remember the name of, of the monster. And then um, also uh, uh, you get you get another sort of, maybe not direct callback, but uh, a, another callback to... Um, girl in the fireplace with monster under mm-hmm. the bed uh, yeah idea mm-hmm. so uh of course this time it's flipped because the monster ends up being on top of the bed right but you know that 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 idea about that being the fear and you know for children who are trying to go to sleep are they are you really alone so yes um, yes but let's no and actually after this i'm i'm pulling it up now after this episode aired, I made like a list of every illusion I could find because I felt like yeah. this episode did call back so many other things. So like, you know, uh, I'll just call out a couple of them, but like, yeah, from Silence of the Library, like that idea of you have this irrational fear of the dark, but it's not irrational, you know, because there's something in there. Um, and you have the monster under the bed from Girl in the Fireplace. You have missing memories, which like we've had with the silence, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know the fact that they go to the end of the universe, you know, which we thought they did in Utopia. Maybe this is even further in the end of the universe. Um, you have like the monster knocking, maybe, um, you know, on the the spaceship, which is sort of like midnight. Um, you've got things out of the corner of your eye, like in Eleventh Hour. Um, the hiding monster, like in hide. Mm-hmm. Um, so like definitely when I was watching, which I saw people complain about, you know, this is further evidence that Moffat has run out of original ideas and is now plagiarizing his own material, you know, but for me, when I was going through and you realize the sheer number of, you know, things that it's calling back, after the episode aired the first time, I made a list of all of the illusions that I found because I felt like this episode kept referencing older stories. Um, so the ones I caught were, um, well, there's the orange space shoot, you know, from the Satan Pit, uh, which I always like to see. Um, <laughs> there's the kind of this irrational fear of the dark, which isn't irrational from Silence in the Library. The Monster Under the Bed from Girl in the Fireplace. Um, the Missing Memories from the Silence episodes. Um, we have the, the Gallifreyan Barn and just the general corruption of the Time Lords from Day of the Doctor. You've got, you know, the young doctor kind of traumatized by, you know, the burden of his, you know, Gallifreyan childhood, which is sort of echoes the master with the, the sound of drums. Um, there's the end of the universe, which they sort of went to in Utopia, but apparently this is more in the end of the universe because um, there's nothing left at all. Um, you have something knocking on, you know, what should be an empty, uninhabited planet, which is like midnight. Um, there's, uh, you know, the, the something in the mirror for the girl from the family of blood um, and, and in the corner of your eye, like the 11th hour. There's creepy nursery rhymes, which we've had in The Beast Below and Night Terrors. Um, there's the kind of hiding monster, the perfectly evolved hider, like in Hyde. Mm-hmm. 
and you also have another stranded time traveler also like in Hyde. And then, um, you know, just these general predestination chicken or egg paradoxes where you have, you know, characters causing their own history and future, you know, which is in Blink and lots of other things. So, um, and what kind of struck me was I saw lots of people, um, the people who did not like this episode, you know, kind of using this as further evidence that Moffat has sort of run out of original ideas and that he's sort of now mining and plagiarizing his own material, you know, looking to make, you know, these stories which are just sort of, you know, he's just rearranged the furniture, but basically he's rewritten his own stuff. Um, and, but it kind of seems to me that when there's that amount of referencing in one episode and it's done kind of as artistically as this, it seems to me that that's intentional. You know, it's not just, you know, he's run out of things. It's that I think he has certain motifs that he's interested in and he's kind of, you know, you do get with Moffat all of these monsters, which are kind of defined by absence, you know, so, you know, in Blink, you can't ever see them move, you know, or the silence, you can't remember them, or Vashinarada, you can't see them and you can't go in the shadow. And here you have, you know, monsters which you're told explicitly you must never look at. So uh, to me, that's not plagiarism, that's a motif, you know, that's sure. like this kind of, it's a repeated meme, if you will, <laughs> um, which I like. And, and I also feel like he's not just making any old reference. He's specifically referencing for me, the scariest episodes, you know, like, you know, you've got Silence in the Library and Midnight and The Satan Pit and Girl in the Fireplace. Like, these are some of the really scary ones. So, again, to go back to this idea of what if there aren't any monsters? What if this is just the Doctor totally psyching himself out and obsessing over something that isn't really there? To me, that kind of suggests that this episode is about, like, fear, you know? So it's not even about any one particular monster or what they want or what they can do. It's just this notion of, you know, the, the effect of fear and where that comes from. And we even get the origin story of the doctor's fears. It kind of seems to me. Um, so anyway, um, I forget how we got into that, but just to say that you noticed some of those references and, and I did too. So um yeah yeah no i well and i was mentioning specifically girl in the fireplace and um silence silence in the library i mm -hmm. but you're right i mean all the ones that you listed <laughs> um you definitely can see shades of that and i think you're right that it it does all boil down to you know the fear factor so to speak whether whether it is rational or not and you know, uh, I, I guess when it comes to fear, like, there's always a rationalization of, like, why I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, like, pe some people are afraid of spiders because spiders are ugly and poisonous and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Even though, like, unless you live in, like, the Amazon, you know, you're probably not going to run into a spider that can actually kill you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or at least, you know, I suppose there are some other 
spiders around that could do that. But you know what I mean? Like for the most part, you, you know, that's not a rational kind of fear or whatever. But at the same time, there there is a rationality to it because, you know, just from sort of evolutionary perspective, which is where we begin this episode, uh, you know, yeah. of of, you know, the idea of a being evolving perfectly to hide um Mm. there is that idea of fear you know where like from an evolutionary standpoint it's like you know fear of the unknown is kind of rational because because you don't know it because you don't know if it's dangerous yet or not you know precisely the fact that it is unknown and so but then that also turns that that also turns it on its head because then you start thinking, well, why does something evolve to be completely able to be hidden? Mm. Because it's afraid of things. Mm. You know, the the thing that's hiding is the thing that's afraid. You know, it's it's it right. doesn't want to be found. And so we're afraid of the thing we can't see, whereas the thing that you, you know, the thing we can't see, the thing that can't be seen can't be seen because it's afraid. So there's sort of like a mutual, you know, fear thing going on there. And um, as opposed to, you know, like some of the other examples, you know, again, listening, not all of them, but, you know, if you, you know, blink, you're on the fireplace, Mm -hmm. you know, science and library, those are all like the fear there is of something that can actually harm you. Whereas here, Mm -hmm. the fear is of something that's, not there and the reason it's not there is because it's afraid of you (laughs) you know so like like i just i I find that sort of um mirroring i guess almost Mm -hmm. which is a weird word to use for something you can't see but like you know what i mean like that there's that there is a sort of similarity between you know those things like the the very situation uh is sort of circular it's it's hiding because it fears you and and the fact that you can't see it see it makes you fear it um Mm. so so anyway uh, which you know again going back so man we we've gone all over the place like we didn't we didn't (laughs) actually go in the order but but talking about young rupert again you know the idea of like turning away Mm. then becomes more significant because you're turning away to allow it to you know you're promising not to look at it you know, mm-hmm. it wants to stay hidden. And so you're sort of assuaging its fears by acknowledging that you're not going to look at it in that way. Right. Um, right. Which goes to Clara's point at the end about fear doesn't have to make you cruel or cowardly. Fear can make you kind that, right. you know, that, you know, the, the kind of realization that, you know, this is not all, you know, monsters and we've talked about this with like the demon sun angel and everything that we're learning not all demons are necessarily evil not all of the monsters in the doctor who universe are necessarily evil they're not all you know vashta narada or weeping angels that are coming to get you that here we have like you know if if this is a perfect hiding monster it would seem that they aren't really going to do anything they're not really there to interfere you know with your life or your you know harm you or your timeline or anything um and so there is a kind of like the doctor kind of presents it as like a kind of bravado thing of you know uh he's 
a loser because he's not scared. So to prove to him, like, you know, and all this stuff about, you know, the fear is your superpower. It's kind of, you know, giving Rupert, you know, kind of encouraging him to embrace his fear and to use that to make him faster and stronger and a better survivor. But also there's that kind of courtesy element, you know, cause he, he says all that stuff to get Rupert to be sort of brave enough to turn his back. But then when they do, it is presented as, you know, you on the bed, you can leave. It's all right. We're not going to look. And there's this kind of, he presents it very kindly and courteously as, you know, I understand that you don't want to be seen. So mm -hmm. we're doing you a favor here so that you can sort of slip out. Um, right. Right. You know, which in a way makes, again, more mirroring with the doctor and the monsters because you have them unwilling to look at each other, but also they're not going to harm each other either. They just sort of want to go their separate ways. Right. You know, the doctor doesn't just destroy it because it's a monster you know if it's not doing anything to hurt anybody then he's happy to sort of you know look the other way and sort of let it go yeah yeah well and so there's the mirroring between the doctor and the monster but there's also the mirroring between the doctor and young rupert and in yeah. in sort of the doctor eliciting a promise from Rupert not to turn around mm -hmm. and look at the monster and then Clara doing the same thing to the doctor later mm -hmm. by saying promise you won't fly back and yeah. you know just let it go don't look don't you know try to figure this one out kind of thing right well and we're really gonna go over all over the place which I feel like is appropriate yeah in this I, episode. I, I you mean, know the like this is really the, place. the, the order circular so. the order we had picked was an artificial order so we're okay with <laughs> you know not because doing that. the other thing I want to point out is the connection between Clara and the monsters because right. you have her saying guess what's under the bed what me and she goes under so now she's the monster under the bed which again you know, it's kind of the little foreshadowing for later when she is the monster which grabs the doctor's right. foot. From she's literally the, so the monster under she's the bed. <laughs> literally. So the, this this pathological fear of, that the doctor has of this particular dream, we can now kind of date to, you know, Clara, um, which I think is really interesting because with uh, her whole impossible girl thing of going back along the doctor's timeline you kind of have her as both original companion and original monster um which sort of implicitly links those two things and then you get you get you lines know, that's, like that's interesting. i didn't really quite think of it that way but yeah like yeah that's so weird. which i think it's even weirder when you when you see the lines about you know, fears like a companion and things like that, you know, so now there's all this sort of weird linking of, you know, so not, I mean, we always have the doctor compared to the monsters. I feel like that's nothing new, but now we're kind of monstering the companions too in their own way. But again, they're sort of kind monsters. <laughs> like, I just feel like she must be the weirdest monster ever. Like, you know, this doctor, this little kid, you know, who's scared and crying, you know, Thing reaches out, grabs his foot from under his bed, 
and then tells him to get back in bed and then like kind of sits with him and calms him down and strokes his hair and tells him a nice story. And like, he must just be thinking like, what? This is the weirdest, you know, this is not what monsters generally do. So I also kind of like this idea that it's also the origin of this idea of that monsters also aren't necessarily bad or evil or even scary that you know that there are these other creatures which are you know maybe scary because you don't know what they are but they too can be kind you know that it's not just a lesson for the doctor but also a lesson about other people you know and when i see people i mean aliens so right you know there's all these sorts of kind of loopings and mirrorings and everything um and i love that moment when she grabs his foot because i love what jenna coleman does where you you can see she didn't do it on purpose it was sort of this instinctual you know reflex Mm -hmm. to reach out and grab and it's like not until after she does it that she goes oh like you know you can see her kind of cursing herself like i can't believe i just did that how can i salvage this situation so that he's not traumatized for life right um yeah yeah i don't know that i have anything to add to that (laughs) and i have no idea where to go after that so let's go back then and talk a little bit um kind of return to our artificial order here (laughs) and talk about clara um not as the monster per se, uh, but let's talk about her and Danny because Mm. I I mean, this episode does go all over the place, but we at least Mm -hmm. get like the small thread of their sort of burgeoning relationship. But Mm -hmm. then we also get like hints that this is going to last maybe a while. (laughs) Mm. Um, So, you know, we should talk through that a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. So we get we get after the doctor soliloquizes for a while, um, we get Clara and Danny kind of officially having their first quote drink, and it it actually ends up being dinner, like they're on a dinner date. Um, mm-hmm. I like I like how they're and and they did this you know previously too, right? With Danny, sort of like the inter intercutting between their. Uh, conversations and his reactions, you know, of like right. how terribly that just went. Um, right. But then in both cases, like, and, and this time we get more of it, a little more from Clara's viewpoint because. Right. You see her kind of going home and. And saying, you, you know, know, oh, how, you know, that yeah. didn't, could have yeah. gone a lot better kind of thing. Um, and of course they're both awkward and sort of, just like they were the first time they sort of met, they're both kind of making silly, stupid mistakes. Um, you mm-hmm. know, well, it starts out silly, uh, you know, with right. like Danny talking about going straight to dessert and, you know, right, right. Uh, not remembering the word for dessert and sort of implying other things yeah. along the way. Right. Um, but then also, you know, again, we have sort of these, uh, stereotypes about that each of them sort of has of the other that that they're Mm -hmm. you know discovering or working through so you know we know that danny's a soldier and so clara sort of makes a comment about 
soldiering mm. and you know we find out that actually as a soldier he was more like sounds like more like of a army corps of engineers type you know mm. uh where he was like building wells and like helping villagers you know right. you know create a sustainable life you know sort of the opposite of what you normally think of as a soldier who's out killing people um mm -hmm. and that kind of thing uh but then you know him also sort of putting his foot in his mouth uh as well um you know what was he say something like you know people like you or something like that like you know right. being just this sort of stereotypical back at her as she was with him you know initially and so um interesting that she's the one who sort of gets up and and leaves and is is the angry one in that instance because mm -hmm. And I guess that is the way it works out sometimes in real life. But there's also a sense in which it's like, they both know that they like each other already. And like, mm -hmm. you, they can both sort of see that they're neither one of them is really saying what they mean to say. <laughs> so like, right, right. And, and I guess just generally speaking, I guess I see Clara as being a little more forgiving, or at least willing mm -hmm. to let people talk uh you know a little longer than they did but we're also i mean i don't mean to like criticize her for any of that because like there's also sure. like we don't know like the inner cuts like there there's points where like maybe they've been arguing for 20 minutes you know and right, so you don't right. necessarily know what else has been said in the meantime and that kind of thing that's that's kind of the impression i get because there's the one it does seem to kind of jump forward you know to him saying about the 23 wells that he dug and everything. And and the impression I get from Clara is this kind of exasperated, all right, we've been talking about this for a really long time and I don't know how else to sort of, you know, get out of this conversation. So I'd agree that probably the things Clara says are a bit more offensive, you know? Mm -hmm. So in a way you kind of would think that it would be Danny to sort of storm out but it seems like that's the counter is that she kind of made a mistake and he has a hard time letting that go um which I think ties to um when we saw him in the first time he was in it where you kind of saw his slight oversensitivity you know to the the you know the issue of his soldiering and what he did and everything mm. because you know you kind of have him deflecting the kids questions about you know did you have to shoot at people and kill people right. and then there's the one question about you know did you ever kill someone who wasn't another soldier and he you know gets tearful you know so he's not able to sort of you know shrug that one off as well right. as, which i'm um, you know for good reason i'm not saying he should be able to but i think you know it's it's not even just that he gets offended by what clara says but there's something which is difficult for him to sort of emotionally deal yeah. with you know right and we don't obviously we don't know the situation around like right. that so like maybe it was a situation where maybe it was accidental or maybe it was right it was necessary but undesirable like you, you know like right. it's not like he just went around killing random you know right. civilians exactly. for whatever reason like there seem based on the amount of remorse he seems to have for it that there was yeah there was some 
either accident or, you know, unmitigated circumstance that, that just could not be avoided um, Mm -hmm. in that instance. So. Right. And I think it's his kind of, you know, the fact that he seems to be wanting to kind of keep telling Clara, look at all these other things that I did. That seems to be what she's responding to is this sort of, um, you know, not knowing how to deal with his sort of emotional reaction to that. Um, But I think too, you get her, you know, you, you get a sense of her kind of regret about that when they kind of, you know, when they go back later after the Rupert episode. And again, you have this realization of she sort of gave him this idea of being Dan the soldier man in the first place. And, you know, maybe, you know, that deserves a bit more patience, you know, that people, and not just, I don't think that's just in a guilt sense of, oh, I have to go easy on him because it was my idea in the first place. Mm. But this idea that she's misjudging, you know, his character too, that people go into, you know, what they go into for all sorts of reasons that you might not even know about. So, you know, that she kind of, she herself talks up this idea of the bravery of Dan, the soldier man, and what he can stand for and he protects people. And yet here she is, you know, kind of implying that all soldiers do is, you know, violence and and destruction and that they set out to sort of you know that that's what they do is kill people rather than protect them so i think that reminder to him to herself that she's sort of um misjudging like not even just misjudging him but she actually doesn't even know anything about why he became a soldier in the first place or what he might have been trying to do by doing that Sure. Um, right. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. So she comes back and it seems to be going a bit better. She's very apologetic and, you know, he's saying, you know, he's nervous and he doesn't know why and they say stupid things. And then she, of course, puts her foot back in it again um, by calling him Rupert. So... <laughs> Now you start to get... Wait, wait, before we go on, we do have to mention oh, that, yeah. that I just found it funny, obviously, since we're, uh-huh. we're watching this uh, alongside Buffy and Angel, that, you know, uh, Rupert being disappointed in his own name, his name. <laughs> is kind of funny. Yeah, um, it is. Just, yeah. just by juxtaposition, not, you know, sort of yeah. existentially funny for all, everyone, but sure. um, it's just kind of, I laughed. Well, and you kind of, there's some consistency there of Rupert being a kind of slightly geeky book, bookish name, you know, right, that right. it goes along with, you know, Rupert Giles. And here's this kid kind of, oh, that's a stupid name. I'm going to change it, you know, to something cool. So um, there's kind of a consistent attitude there, I think, about the name. Um, but so, you know, with her kind of, accidentally saying the name and then really poorly trying to cover up why or how she could know this you you know you then get the 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 trademark orange spacesuit sort of barging in on you know just as she's saying you know it's not weird there's nothing weird and here comes like you know the weirdness kind of 
uh, intruding on her date. So, you know, I think there's this start, starts to be this hint of, like you said, if this relationship is going to go somewhere, there's, you know, all this sort of doctor life that, you know, is going to sort of make itself known at some point. Um, yeah. At some point. <laughs> at some point. Like, but this almost is, right now. This is not that point. <laughs> this is not that day. Uh, no. <laughs> um, no, but you get, you get Danny's very definitive, I don't do weird, you know? Right. So, you know, which he doesn't know quite how weird it is, but it doesn't exactly promise good things for, you know, uh, you know, her, it doesn't exactly invite Clara to explain the weirdness to him. Yeah. Well, and so, okay, so it seems, it seems like, okay, so this, so Danny and young Rupert are the same person, right? Like, I mean, I, yeah, like, I think. like, that's, that's the conclusion yeah. I come to yes. and all that. Yes. Like, so, I mean, all the signs point to that. I'm not, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that, like, there wasn't something I missed to imply something else. But anyway, no. so, like, I always thought it was weird in shows like this. And I mm -hmm. guess, like, like, Rupert's not, like, that young. You know what I mean? Like, okay. he's not, like, three. <laughs> mm -hmm. Where, like, you get the point of, like, you know, memory is kind of... Like, he's old enough that it seems like he should remember what Clara looks Well, the, like. the doctor says that he scrambled his memories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I was forgetting... So I think that's the... I was forgetting that, which is part of why he calls yeah. himself Danny, right? Like that. Right, he gives him the stream right, of Dan right. the Soldier Man. Yeah, um, I guess that makes sense. Okay, I I had forgotten that one minor point, so you're right. Right, now again, I think there there could be those kind of subconscious memories in there somewhere of, right. you know... Right, like maybe that's him what being attracts him to drawn her. to Clara, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind um, of. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the kind of explanation for why he doesn't say, you know, hey, you know, you're you the lady familiar. who... Yeah. <laughs> We had a rather memorable adventure together once. Um, <laughs> That's quite the pickup line. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I, I guess that makes more sense than the way I was sort of thinking of it. But it just, in the moment, at least, it sort of made me yes. wonder. Um, yeah, but also, I mean, I think that sometimes. But also, I think, you know, how many people do I meet? Now, and I know this is like, this is a very memorable event. So well, and this is different I mean, than like, like bumping into someone on the street. I, I do wonder, you know, there's people that I know the, they were adults that I knew as children. I don't know that, I certainly can't picture them now. If I saw them, would I remember their faces? I don't know. Like, I think, I don't know. Maybe if it's a, an event quite as weird as this, you it would stick a little bit better, but I think people are sometimes hard to remember if you only meet them once, you know? I don't know. At least when you're, when it's been that long and you were a kid. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, if there have been any studies on that, people should link them. 
the yeah well i mean the other thing being like i mean there are definitely people who i've met years later who like i recognize you know Mm -hmm. from when i was a kid but they've also you know been getting older the last 15 20 whatever years so it's also different because like here clara looks exactly the same because it's moments later not years later Mm -hmm. for her so i think that's the other thing that sort of makes me think like but he might still recognize her but you're right yeah and then i think in that case you have the doctor to explain it as you scrambled the memory so yeah no and that's that point does cover it so i'll i'll stop harping um (laughs) so so then we we should talk about orson though too because we don't Mm -hmm. we're like 10 minutes from the hour um of course and so there's a lot of hints and allegations things Mm -hmm. things left unsaid um Mm -hmm. which like i mean again like i don't know what sort of role danny will Mm -hmm. continue to play in this Mm-hmm. The implications is that it's a very romantic one, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which ultimately leads to Orson, um, you know, uh, and 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 Clara also being involved in that. Uh, so, you know, just like the, I almost got the same, you know, in that Star Wars, or actually, mm-hmm. I think it's Return of the Jedi, where um, you get. Luke saying to Leia, you know, the force is strong in my family. And it's like, you know, here you get mm. Orson saying, you know, time travel is strong in my family, <laughs> you know, kind, right, right. kind of thing. Like, you know, I, I had it, my great grandmother had it. <laughs> and, and, right. uh, you know, that sort of thing going on here. Um, but again, like, it's not explicit. Like, I mean, there could be right. some other person potentially who is involved in this is just all based on circumstantial evidence at this point that right yeah that one isn't ever i mean i think the thing with rupert and danny is confirmed a bit more because you have the kind of her saying rupert and danny you know being sort of offended that she yeah how did you know would, that was me how did you know that name and, all that and also kind of the thing. timing um, works because we know that and the timing you yeah. know we know it's the mid-90s and and it would be about the right age for him and, and right right um yeah and she's thinking about him when the tardis sort of goes off course right and everything. so there's so a connection i would i would say that is confirmed you know i think with orson i think what you said is right that it's it's everything but confirmed. Like there's, you know, everything is pointing to this one conclusion that never really gets stated outright, you know? Well, um, and then you have the, you know, the relic that he carries. You do out. have, yeah, that, yeah, his little, but again, yeah, encased heirloom. But again, that doesn't necessarily imply Clara's involvement. It just implies mm. Danny's, mm. you know, um, right. again, could potentially be, Mm-hmm. a different you know uh right matriarchal line <laughs> right um but yeah though i i mean so had the implications but no like you said like no confirmation of the actual 
you know, thing that's going on there. Um, mm. I always, I, I, I wonder how many times we can go like to the end of the universe <laughs> and how many, and, and I mean, as many as we, I, I know that like the universe has restarted <laughs> yeah. and rebooted, you know, uh -huh. several times and, uh -huh, and yeah. we sort of maybe shifted from one to another here and there. So maybe, maybe that's all this is, is like, this is just, it's the end of this universe, even mm -hmm. though we've been to the end of other universe, universe, right. universe, 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 universes. Um, Right. The, you know, okay. I mean, so to me, this is kind of like, I think for all the kind of, you know, darkness and occasional bleakness of Doctor Who, it is essentially optimistic. And I think basically there's never going to run out of the end of the universe because there's always going to be more universe. And I think that's kind of one of the lessons of it is like they keep going there and every time they think it's the end, it's never really the end. Like, you know, we've been to the end of the world and we've been to, you know, utopia, which was supposed to be the last gasp of everything. Um, and, you know, this idea of, you know, even in Utopia, the doctor saying, you know, you, you spent a million years evolving into clouds of gas, but you evolved back. Like, you know, there's, I don't think we're ever actually going to see the universe die, really. It's, there's this kind of moral that there's always more, um, you know, I don't know. That's my read on it is kind of, there will be as many ends of the universe as there need to be. And philosophically, I think that's kind of feels right, mm. you know? I mean, the, the end of the universe might be scary and empty and sort of, you know, terrifying that, you know, Orson is kind of going nuts being there by himself. But, sure. um, but I don't know. Like, I think there's always going to be the sense that there's always more of something you know yeah 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 no and and fair enough i guess i guess my one question like okay he was there like six months by himself stranded at and and it's you know the end of the universe but like why did he have to be stranded at the end of the universe like he could have been stranded in any number of ways i guess that's just sort of like the mm -hmm. like it seems like i don't know that that putting it at the end of the universe makes it any worse than being stranded somewhere. So I'm, I guess I'm just curious sort of about that decision. I don't, yeah, I, I don't mean, know that. I think, I don't know that it matters one way or the other. Like, I don't think it's necessarily right. worse. I'm just, I maybe, and maybe I'm just trying to read into something that doesn't need to be read into. I was just sort Well, of, I think it's necessary for the story for this idea of the hiding monsters and that what if, it's not until, you know, there's nothing left he's, of anything else that they might the, come out. Yeah, he's literally you the know? last being Right, ever. and so for the Doctor's obsession of finding out, are do these things exist, and would they ever show themselves, and what would they do? This is literally the only way he could ever find out, would be to outlast everything, and, you know... Now, of course... That doesn't happen. He doesn't see anything. So, 
you know, again, you're back to the same questions of, does that mean they're not really there? Does that mean, you know, you, you can't ever find out because right. if, if you're still there, then by default, it's not the end of the universe. And they, you know, yeah. like you can't ever, this is a unprovable theory basically. Um, you know, but I think that makes sense for the story that, you know, he's he's kind of conjecturing that this is the only circumstance in which he could ever really find out for sure um, whether these creatures exist. Right. Potentially. Potentially. Well, yeah, like, I mean, right, you can't prove a negative. Like, if you can't right. prove that they don't exist, you could, you could only prove that they do exist right. if you happen to find them. But since the whole point is that they hide perfectly, yeah. you won't ever right. find them. So... Right. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so we should probably go the other way then and talk about the doctor mm -hmm. as a youngster. And I mean, right. we talked a little bit about Clara's role and mm -hmm. under, you know, the under the bed stuff, but, um, you know, so there's more, more to go here. Like, um, yeah. So this is, I guess not, I almost said retconning, not really retconning, but like explaining, I guess, mm -hmm. the shack or barn or whatever that we've mm -hmm. seen in other, in, uh, in, yeah. in Day of the Doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is interesting to then go back to that and realize that that place had sort of significance to him, which right. it kind of seemed to be just a random barn in, you know, right. Like cut off in the wilderness, a quiet place. For yeah. Him just some place for him work, to go. But, um, yeah. And, and yeah, like, so is it still at this time as, you know, much in the wilderness or is it just like in the wilderness at that point, because everything else has been destroyed because it's the middle right. of a war. Like, Right. I don't know that we, we, we don't really get that answer here. Right. Um, but yeah, like, is it, like, does that mean that he sort of grew up out of the mainstream to begin with? And does that right, account right. for any of his quirks? <laughs> um, yeah. You know. Well, and it seems like he definitely grew up quirky to begin with, that all the other right. boys are sort of sociable and inside and sort of, you know, doing what they're supposed to. And he's, you know classic introvert not, exactly and but not in the kind of you know cheeky rebellious way that you expect the doctor to be but as this kind of afraid social outcast mm. you know who the others are all you know being you know shaped into these capable little soldiers and he's sort of not handling that quite which, as well which then makes you wonder how much of his present personality um, at least since the show started that, you know, of the centuries of his personality that we've seen yeah. are, are yeah. overcompensation for that right. type of, right. uh, you know, personality he had growing up. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, perhaps still has. And, and at times, I mean, we certainly see him not to lump all the iterations of the doctor together into one, but we certainly see him having, you know, moments of that more, I want to be alone, even though, like, I shouldn't mm -hmm. be. 
you know, right. alone. Like, yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. Her, I mean, even the, 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 the woman who says like, you don't have to be alone. Like, I, I think we've had companions say those exact words. To talk yeah. To yeah. You like, shouldn't be alone. You, you know, need to find yeah. someone. Um, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So that, I, I mean, not necessarily surprising that that sort of thing would manifest mm -hmm. at an early age, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So. And I mean, the other thing too, is this, the separation between, um, well, a couple things. One, it kind of seems to confirm this idea, which I think, um, has always been debated among the fans of are all Gallifreyans necessarily time lords. Um, so you get this kind of qualifier that, you know, he, he'll never make a time lord, which kind of suggests that he isn't one already. Like mm -hmm. not everybody who's born in this group of people on this planet is a time lord, that that's something you have to sort of achieve. Um, yeah. And that they're, you know, maybe graduates of whatever this academy is. Um, so, you know, so that's interesting that they kind of seem to, at a young age, separate them into the soldiers and the Time Lords, like the people who, you know, are a soldier or those who go to the academy. Mm -hmm. And the doctor is apparently not academy material, um, which is kind of funny because he's always, you know, this is the, the academic, you know, it's the doctor. He's always sort of, approaching things from the scientific point of view as much as possible and knows everything. And we kind of rely on him as this intellectual authority, but here you have his own people, you know, kind of saying, you know, well, he's not going to the Academy. Like that's which, obvious. Which makes you wonder is, you know, is it an honorary doctorate? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like, you know, right. what, what is the, did he, right. Did he, did ever, he ever actually, academy? that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe he didn't. And, and, and I sort of, I obviously said that jokingly and like, you know, there is sort of a, a you know, honorary doctorates are nice, but you like, mm -hmm. if someone only has an honorary doctorate, you don't normally call them doctor. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. so, you know, there's, many discussions about you know his assumed name or whatever but and mm -hmm. and the legitimacy of it but there is you know there there's also a sense of like i know we're not talking about you know they're splitting sort of soldier versus doctor um mm -hmm. there but we also we do get a sense i mean he he is also a soldier he's called a mm -hmm. soldier you know a number of times in a number of different ways in the warrior and this mm -hmm. and that you know, why is he called doctor if he's not a warrior, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So like there is with him, at least in particular, maybe this isn't true of all Gallifreyans, but with him in particular, there is a conflation of the, of those terms. And, mm -hmm. and like, you could almost see as like the, the degree, the bestowal of, uh, you know, time lordness being sort of, a wartime commission type deal, you mm -hmm. know, like field promotion slash, right. you know, like whatever. And like, we don't, because he was the doctor, you know, before the series, like, like he's the doctor from the first time we see him. So like, we don't know the circumstances around his gaining that 
you know, taking on that right. name. Right. Um, and we don't know the specific circumstances around him being a Time Lord. I mean, we we do get the sense, just based on what's happened, that it is in some way sanctioned because we get things like, you know, even like, you know, with the regeneration from 11 to 12, we get the fact mm -hmm. that he's granted a whole new set of regenerations. So like, you right. know, there is this idea that like, although it may be begrudging at times, like he is at least acknowledged as a Time Lord. So there's, there is some legitimacy there. It's just like, yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't know the level to what, like, is it more like a degree for life experience, <laughs> you know, versus <laughs> a degree yeah. based on classroom attendance, you know, kind of thing. Right, um, right. Or, or, you know, lab work or whatever, you know, other things might go into getting a degree. <laughs> um, That's funny. Um, well, and, and, and also, I'll... like, I mean, you could read in a lot of that, like, little hints, like, um, that he doesn't fly the TARDIS so well. Like, so maybe he never right, took, right. you know, TARDIS driver's ed, you know, kind of thing. Right. Well, I think he even says, like, you know, doesn't Martha ask him, did he take lessons and he said and he failed or something? Yeah. Like, well, he, right. And, and River, like, sort of implying that she. Right, right. You know, does it better. And, does it yeah. better. And, like, is the one who sort of taught him, like, how to fly. Right, right. Um, and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know. Yeah, and so the other thing too is this. Um, you know, they've mentioned soldiers a couple times this season. Um, you know, and you had him sort of rejecting Journey Blue with this. Um, you know, I just wish he hadn't been a soldier. Um, so this idea of, you know, if if all children, you know, of his uh, culture are sort of separated into you know, soldiers or I guess academics, he is sort of maybe being told he should be one and sort of rejecting that and choosing the other. So you have, like, like you said, like maybe even if doctor, we know doctor is an assumed name that he chose and it's this promise. So, you know, it's this promise to be this certain kind of person and not to be, you know, even though maybe he's more of the soldier than he likes to admit there's still this this rejection of the army and you know and and the woman saying you know he doesn't want to join the army like apparently at this young age he's made that clear that you know even if he's being told he should be a soldier he's not really interested so um i kind of like that consistency into this new season with all these sort of soldiers running around you have kind of you know the origin of that idea with the doctor yeah. yeah um and i guess i mean we should probably wrap up too but um you know just to mention in the last minute you know clara's um kind of giving the doctor his own sort of life philosophy you know yeah um and you know some significant parts about um you know, the line about fear doesn't have to make you cruel or cowardly, which, you know, is pointing back to what that's actually a line. I don't think it's from the classic series proper, but it's a line that one of the classic series writers was known for saying, like, mm. it's an oft quoted thing of, 
of, I think it was Terrence Sticks saying, you know, the doctor's never cruel or cowardly. So that's a line which, even if it's not in the show, it's a sort of in the lore of Doctor Who, that that was, you know, who the doctor is. Um, so Claire kind of invoking that. And then the final line about uh, fear makes companions of us all is actually from the very, not the very first episode, but the very first story of Doctor Who. So like in the first adventure that we ever see in 1963, the doctor says that to one of his companions that fear makes companions of us all. Mm. So again, linking that idea of companion and fear and monster and all that, but also back to the roots of the show that this is where he gets this idea, I guess is, you know, from Clara and that, you know, that being something which brings people together rather than it doesn't have to be something that drives them apart. Yeah. Alright. Okay. Well we're over. Do we have anything else before we move on to Angel? No, just I um would say that I like this episode. I don't know if I'd be quite so bold as to say it's the best episode mm -hmm. of Doctor Who ever. Um mm -hmm. but you know, it, I I did I did enjoy it. Um and, and I mean we've talked about how you know, I do tend to enjoy episodes that aren't sort of the strict linear storyline yeah. anyway to begin with so yeah um, I do enjoy that aspect of it um, yeah I agree. And, and I'm I'm curious to see where Danny goes mm -hmm. and and how that all shakes out of course I have my thoughts obviously but you know who, who knows <laughs> I've thought things before yeah. and been wrong so yeah sounds like the sexual right. country song thought things before and I've been wrong <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so on to Angel. On to Angel. Okay, and and you have a couple. I do. I have. For this. I have some things. I have. I, I have thoughts. It's a thing. I have words. Um, it's not a plan. It's a thing. So, uh, I I think I mentioned this uh, last week, but just wanted to remind folks that this is sort of not not a crossover per se, but a companion episode. Mm -hmm to um mm -hmm. the last Buffy episode that we saw and and uh which was Fool for Love which sort of gave Spike's origin story um right and and so this is Darla's origin story um and sort of interesting so this is uh this is written and directed by Tim Minear and it's his mm -hmm. it's his television directorial debut um very nice and you know, we've mentioned before how uh, Minear tends to be the guy who likes to look at the history. Like he looks, he, he likes to look at the things that, you know, make, uh, you know, make the characters tick based on how yeah. they've been before. And so um, when he was, when he was sort of tasked with writing this episode, um, he's, he sort of spoke up and was like, hey, I'd, I'd also like to direct. And kind of gave his idea about, okay, we just revealed, you know, recently that Darla is human. So, you know, let's, let's explore that. Let's go back to see what she was like as a human before she was turned into a vampire. Just like we've seen snippets with, you know, Liam before he became Angel and, and now, right. you know, Spike. And, 
and and Joss Whedon was actually like, well, but we're already doing that with Spike, so let's not do that. And it was actually mm-hmm. Tim Minear's suggestion to, you know, take uh, take the two episodes and say, well, obviously, you know, these two people knew each other, so right. let's let's work that through. Let's let's talk about, you know, the places where they're going to run into each other just naturally because they spent time and and you know and they were you know like darla is sort of the grand sire of you know whatever so like you know right of this whole lineage of of this lineage and stuff so like like it makes sense actually that they would sort of be back to back and that we can tell stories and do it from this different perspective um and he actually likened it to pulp fiction where you get the beginning of Pulp Fiction, you right. have Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer sitting, you know, in the diner, coffee shop, you know, whatever, um, sort of doing their thing. But then at the end, you have yeah. John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson sitting in the same coffee right. shop. And you realize that, like, these are like... They've been there the whole time. Yeah, right? there's like these two stories going on sort of simultaneously. Right. Um and they're, and they're about to collide with each other. Yeah, yeah, and 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 right, and there's like doing their own thing, but there's like this crossover moments, mm-hmm. and and so you get the moments here in Darla where where you kind of have that going through, and I, I I like how that sort of all worked out because I think you know now that we're into the second season of Angel, you know you're you're not gonna get the same crossover like we had in the first season where you have like Buffy coming to town or, you know, uh, Oz, I'm on my way out to LA for a gig, you know, so let me drop by, you know, kind of thing. Like, like we've already, we've already dealt with that. Like they've, they've really cut most of their ties from each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that they're not friendly, you know, maybe, but like, we know that like, this isn't like Angel and Buffy sort of running to each other. Faith is in prison on her own willingly. Like, you know, she's not yeah. coming out at this point. Like, so there's just fewer opportunities and, and I think fewer necessity from a storytelling perspective to rely on that sort of thing too. These are different shows, yeah. but I do like, I do like that idea of like going back in time to, you know, talk about the development of these personalities as, you know, um, they're developing. Um, yeah. So, so I really, I really like, and I mean, I've made no bones about the fact that I really like Tim Minear's styles of storytelling. And I think um, he right. does a good job here. From from an episode perspective, um, really well received overall. Um, now, mm-hmm. this I was trying to confirm this. On Wikipedia, it says that Joss Whedon stated that his, this is his uh, all-time favorite episode. I assume of they mean of Angel. I don't think okay. I don't think of like any of show anything ever, um, and that he apparently said this on uh, an interview on Attack of the Show. Um, mm-hmm. I could not find uh, independent confirmation of that. They don't they okay. don't like list the episode number or anything, so um, the reference isn't there. Uh, what I did do is I found. Um, in in two thousand and nine, Den of Geek put together uh, what they considered their top ten Angel episodes. This mm-hmm. this episode does not appear on their list, but on Whedon esque, um, you know, they they posted the link to the article and sort of asked Whedon esque followers to, uh, you know, follow up with their sort of favorite episodes and. And there were like over 50 comments. Not all of them are like lists of favorite episodes, but a lot of them are. And there's a surprising 
number of, um, I, you know, there's some references to Darla, not necessarily, you know, as a character, not necessarily this episode, but even just looking through the ones that are actual lists, like seeing this episode, um, there's, there's, mm -hmm. there's, you know, close to a dozen or more fans who list this, uh, you know, in, in that list of 50 or so comments who call this one of their favorite episodes. So, um, yeah. you know, a fairly significant portion, at least, of, mm -hmm. of that, uh, you know, that group of fans. Um, but even perhaps more significantly, um, in lieu of finding that Attack of the Show episode, uh, in the box set of, um, you know, the Angel Collector set of the DVDs, um, Joss Whedon includes like a letter in there and he talks about some of his favorite moments of the series. Um, and mm -hmm. one of those moments is Darla being horrified at the idea that Spike was killing a slayer while Angel was saving a missionary family, uh, which, mm. which we get, you know, as part of their... Right. Um, when she's sort of like demanding that he kill the baby, uh, right. you know, in this episode. So um, there's that, that aspect of it. Um, you know, even if it ends up, maybe he didn't say that it was his favorite episode. We at least know that there's a moment of this episode that was memorable enough to him to years right. later, you know, include it as part of the, his favorite moments in the series. So um, right. I think overall, just sort of well-received episode. Um, mm -hmm. And and it actually did win an award. Um, it won the best period hairstyling in a series for at the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards. Um, okay. So, you know, I don't, I'm not in the industry. I don't know how prestigious those awards are, but it's an award, you know, and it's... Well, from the Guild, I think would be good because it means it's other people in that industry voting. So it would be other makeup and hair people. So I presume they know what they're talking about. Right, you know? right. So I feel like that would be a nice pat on the back to get that from like your peers. Yep. Um, yeah, so exactly, I, you know, good for them. You know, it's an award yeah. and, and it's, you know, something where, um, you know, at, at this point at least Angel hasn't gotten a lot of awards. So it, it's sure. worth noting <laughs> one way or the yeah. other. So, um, yeah, just wanted to sort of give that um, sort of background to it. Um, and we could talk, I have, a, a, you know, Tim Minear, um has an interview on his website uh, with some stuff in it, but it's more to the storyline. So mm -hmm. we can talk about some of that when we, uh, when okay. we do get into it. Um, yeah, well, so I kind of wanted to start kind of like we did last time with the Spike episode, more with the kind of flashback things and the things that we learned there. Um, and I think it is it is nice to see the kind of four of them all together because you kind of don't always realize um, it, that's the kind of stuff that it, it's, you kind of know it, but you kind of just don't think about it where you go, oh yeah, these people all would know each other and they would have spent all this time together, but because you never have seen them all, all in one place. Mm. You know, like, Darla's gone by the time Spike and Drusilla turn up. Right. You know, so right. you kind of should associate them with each other, but because you don't see them in the same space, I think it can be hard to remember to kind of think that 
deeply about it. You know, it's sort of the thing of when you think about it, you go, oh yeah, you know, like if you really, and that's the kind of fanfic element of it, you know, which is fun of like the writer saying, all right, let's actually extrapolate what this would have been, you know, mm -hmm. like if we are to do the Darla backstory by necessity, we sort of have to include, you know, obviously Angel, but Spike and Drusilla and even getting to see the master again, which is cool. Like, you know, all these characters that, um, you know, you kind of need if you're going to go into her, her history and everything. Um, yeah. And it's cool. Like I even like the, the, uh, the stuff that they used in both episodes. So it is cool to watch them back to back, like that kind of slow motion villain shot of the four of them, like walking through like the burning destruction of China yeah, and everything. Yeah. But, um, you know, but the first time it's sort of the same wide shot, but that, you know, the first time it's sort of focusing on Spike. Mm -hmm. And then this time it's more on Darla and Angel. Um, yeah. And I mean, I want to go through the flashbacks kind of one by one, but even again, I'll say the way it kind of retcons what we understand about those scenes, you know, because we find out some stuff about Angel that we did not know the last time, you know, even seeing, so now you're even seeing scenes that we saw in the last episode that I understand differently now because of, you know, mm. what we learn. So um it's interesting but okay so anyway we might as well go in order so sure. we start with um darla in the kind of you know virginia colonies so she's kind of apart from the master she's sort of the oldest vampire that we know like she's dating back earlier than you know with Spike and Angel, we keep going back further in history. So we get her going a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. um, and we get this, this, you know, revelation, a couple things. One that um, Darla actually couldn't have been and wasn't her name. Um, couldn't have been because it wasn't in popular use then, but also um, she kind of even confirms that she doesn't remember her name, so we know that it wasn't Darla. So, um, you know, but what we do get is this uh, revelation that she was a prostitute mm -hmm. in the Virginia colonies, um, which, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily like known what to guess, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, but I don't think it's of the same quality of, I think what's interesting about it's different than with Spike where you have this very contrasting thing of like, you know, romantic poet William contrasting with like Spike, you know, mm -hmm. the bloody who, you know, you know, impales people and railroad spikes. Like you have, even though I think we talked about how there is continuity between those two, you get this kind of like, his punk rebellious rejection of everything he was before. Sure. Um, whereas it seems like with Darla, there's less of that contrast. Like, I mean, I don't know that I'm not saying I would have known that she was a prostitute before we found out about this, but there's still that kind of 
seductive quality about her, you know? Yeah. That seems like a bit more in line with what we know. And even just her kind of, um, kind of general amoral attitude, like you have her already saying as a human dying before she's even turned to a vampire, you have her saying that her soul is past saving and, you know, let the devil take me. So even before she's a soulless demon, you still have her kind of, you know, rejecting, embracing, yeah. embracing her yeah. own damnation and, you know, rejecting the notion of redemption and all right. those things. So it seems like her, there's less of a personality shift once she gets bitten than there was for Spike. Well, and I mean, Right, so she's, like, one way or another, she's still sort of a lady of the night. You know, like, that That sure. there's this, you know, think about even, like, when we see her first meeting Liam as he's stumbling out mm-hmm. of a bar. It's like, there's a very sort of, oh, come yeah. with me for a good time attitude to it, you know, even right. then. And, and, like, I don't even know that at that time they would have known her backstory right. was... As no, but it makes. But, but I think there's continuity with what we've seen I, of her. I think you're like, right that there is that there is definitely a, you know, sort of like this. Like she's already familiar with the seductive side of things. She's okay with mm-hmm. luring men down an alley, like you know, for whatever reason, and mm-hmm. and that there is sort of, um, yeah, that there's that aspect to it. But also, you know, one one of the interesting things is like. I, I think you're right to pick up on sort of the amorality of it, if that's the right word. I don't word. know if that's the right word. But, but her her sense of that... She's she's that, too far that gone. That she's already She's damned. past redemption. Yeah. Because I think, I think that's what we see in, you know, in the previous episode where, where you have Angel trying to explain to her, like, oh, you know you have a soul again, you have another shot. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting the explanation that like, she didn't even believe that when she was human. So like, why would right. she believe that now? Why would she believe it now? When she's yeah. human again. So, which is interesting because like, this is Angel trying to appeal to someone in a way that like, like he sees himself as having a second chance now. And so like, he's going to, you know, he's not going to disappoint daddy this time, right? He's going to, mm-hmm. he's going to do things right and be a good guy, but that he, he didn't know Darla before she was a vampire. So right. he doesn't know what, you know, her attitude or her, um, mm-hmm. you know, personality or whatever was like. And so it does sort of make sense based on what we see here, the way that she's acting and sort of his confusion as to why she doesn't, you know, embrace that opportunity more fully (laughs) um Mm -hmm. becomes a bit more clear at least to us you know from that perspective um right right and it kind of does show why angel is having a hard time um you know saying the right thing and kind of getting her to understand is is maybe because he's not aware of you know her her full history and you know why she thinks the way she does, what makes her tick. Um, and even the fact that he realizes he doesn't even know what her real name was. Like he never knew, you know, this whole side of her. Right. Um, right. And, and how much of her forgetting her own name is, 
you know, like you could almost see it like that she had many different names, even, mm. you know, as a prostitute or whatever. Maybe she was a different name to different people or, you know, clients right. or whatever. So, you know, maybe there is sort of, I mean, not to be like too stereotypical, you know, whatever, but like there there is at least the idea of you know losing oneself by selling oneself you know in that way mm-hmm. that that maybe she had already sort of given up whatever personality she had before and so that in a way becoming a vampire gives her a chance to have uh you know right. a more a more sustained again. identity than she did before yeah yeah, yeah. Right. so right um yeah i you know just I def- I definitely think there's some interesting stuff that comes out of just that idea of knowing who she was, you know, before she mm-hmm. was turned. Um and and also then explains sort of her devotion to the master. Uh mm-hmm. which is where we first saw her was in the master service back right. at the beginning of Buffy. Um and, Right. And yeah. Which is so the next flashback we get is her taking the newly sort of created Angelus to him and, you know, it's Angelus at his most like confident and sort of like, you know, but full of himself and, you know, um, very cocky and telling the master sort of how to do things. Um, and so you kind of get that kind of, again, puts, her being with the master at the beginning of Buffy in a slightly different context, because you get her leaving the master mm. for Angel, you know, for, or for Angelus, you know, that he offers her, you know, rather than sort of, you know, hiding in the dark, waiting for this kind of like, you know, apotheosis in the future when we'll all, you know, worship the master. It's sort of, Angelus offers her this room with a view, you know, like to be kind of, you know, putting it in that context. Um, so there's kind of like a a feminist idea there too, I think. But, you know, he's this this exciting person who can kind of be her partner and open up all these other ways of living that they can continue their sort of reckless you know, tear across the world. Right. Um, You know, and, and I think too, furthers this idea that, I mean, we saw with Spike and Drusilla that there was, you know, um, however kind of crazy and violent they were, there was a sort of real connection between them Mm. and the real, you know, a real bond between them. And I think you see that with, these two, you know, so it's not just that she sort of keeps Angel around, it's that he offers her something that, you know, right. that is appealing and that she's attracted to that the master didn't offer her. And and that it's not just like, you know, puppy romance type stuff that, that I think you're right. Like there is definitely a connection there. And so um, Tim Minear talks about some of the flack he got Mm -hmm. um for for saying for sort of portraying uh their romance because there are some people who sort of take the portrayal of angel 
or Angelus and Drusilla um, as like Tim Minear sort of saying like, oh, they're, they're really the true couple. Whereas, you know, Angel and Buffy aren't. And, and you sort mm-hmm. of get that, you know, even from Darla and, um, did I say Drusilla before? I meant Angel and, and Jealous and, sorry, and Darla. I'm confused. Okay. Uh, sorry, Angel and Darla, uh, uh-huh. being, being sort of the true romance, um, versus Angel and Buffy. But, um, and, and you get like Darla, you know, her sort of shock, you know, when, when mm-hmm. she's like, oh, you know, that, that blonde cheerleader, like, you know, mm-hmm. is whatever. And, and, you know, Tim Minear was just sort of said, like, you know, look, when you realize that, like, they talk about being together for 150 years, like, that's not, like, even if they end up getting split up at the end of that, that's still right. a long time for a relationship. It's not nothing, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. that's, you know, obviously way longer than any human relationship. And, right. and demon or not, you kind of, you know, you have to deal with the baggage and you know and and the Mm. connection that is going to keep a couple together for that long um Mm. and and so he said uh he said he sort of made it to sort of play like um who's afraid of virginia wolf where it's like an Mm. old married couple with secrets you know who are just kind of you know getting to that point where like uh you know the something's going to snap at some point, but it, you know, it, it, you know, it, that doesn't mean that like all of that time before that snap uh, is pointless or useless. Um, But it also doesn't take away anything from Angel and Buffy's relationship either that, that there is ultimately something that, that, isn't quite as deep with Angelus and Darla and Angel and Darla afterwards. Um, right. Well, an angel, I think said that in the last episode where he kind of said, you know, that, you know, when she kind of scoffed about, you know, that cheerleader, she couldn't give you what I give you. And he's kind of turning it and saying, actually, she gave me something a lot more, you know, that, you know, we were together and maybe there was this, you know, not that there was no connection because obviously like Rainier says, they wouldn't be together that long if there was nothing there, but you know, being with Darla never caused him, you know, that kind of happiness that being with Buffy did. So I think those aren't, they shouldn't be contradictory ideas. Like, you know, these characters have multiple relationships and they're all slightly different from each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And they're all not all going to, be uh relating in quite the same way um um but so go ahead to kind of i think i started by saying that puts the beginning of the show in a slightly different context because then you kind of realize when we do start in sunnydale and darla's back with the master that we we didn't know that there was this period where she had gone away from him right you know to be with angelus and that at some point we don't know quite how long ago but at some point it seems she came back um you know so it that to me reads like if i now if i go back and rewatch that that reads slightly differently that she's sort of 
I don't know if that's a kind of regretting the decision she made or whatever, but, um, you know, it puts her relationship with the master in a different light, I think. Um, yeah. So the next one we get is uh, in 1880. So Drusilla's with them by this point. Um, and you get a little bit of, you know, third wheel bickering, you know, of, you know, Drusilla saying, uh, you won't have me even a little bit. And uh, his head's too full of you, grandmother. <laughs> so kind of like <laughs> putting, putting down her sire for her, uh, for her greater age. Um, but this idea of like, they have Drusilla with them, but, you know, three's a, three's a crowd, you know, like, uh, you know, they, they kind of need for her to go and have her own sort of playmate to keep her occupied. And of course, you know, which is when poet William manages to sort of stumble into them and get himself chosen. Right. Um, <laughs> and the, and the letdown of, I could pick the wisest and bravest knight in all the land, you know, and it's, you know, him sort of crying and heartbroken with his rejected poetry and sort of at his most despondent um but anyway yeah yep that's what drew goes for yep <laughs> um okay so next we go to romania and so here's the bit where i think there is a pretty um at least correct me if i'm wrong and if this was in the last episode i missed it but I didn't realize watching the Fool for Love Spike episode that then during the whole uh, China period, which comes later, that Angel already has his soul back. They kind of, I don't think they ever actually say that. Now, in, in I don't Fool know for that love? we, in Fool for right. Love, I don't think they do. No, they don't. Um, okay. That's correct. Now, I, you're, you're, well, you're, good. you're coming upon the second point that I was going to, but go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. No, that's, well, that's good. so just, I mean, I want to talk about this episode, the Romania and the China stuff, because again, that makes me read those scenes in slightly different contexts. And you can kind of see it. There's something about Angel, which seems kind of not as into this whole destruction thing as he was before, you know, he has lines about like, well, this rebellion's getting kind of boring and, um, you know, let's get out of here and that stuff. But it's very subtle. Like it's not enough that, um, it really kind of, you know, flagged it to me only enough to kind of say like, Oh, something's, it, you could almost read it as like a rivalry with Spike of like, you know, he's, now he's with us. He is causing all this trouble and he's getting to be a pain in the butt and Angel's kind of annoyed by having him tag along. Right. Um, that's kind of how I read it the first time. Um, but anyway, go ahead and say what you're going to say. No, no. We, let's talk about Romania first. So like, okay. So this is, this is right after Angel is cursed. And yes. Gets his soul. And Darla, so they were, I mean, they were together, right? So Darla and 
yeah. and Angel and Drew and Angelus and Drew and, and Spike are together. Angel's the one who gets cursed, not any of the mm-hmm. others. And now Darla's unhappy. Um, mm-hmm. They don't know what this re ensouling does. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Darla seems to know that, like, it's going to make him suffer in some way. And, yeah. and, that it's like sort of the extent to which she knows that is that it's an annoyance to her. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, remove that filthy soul. So my boy might return to me. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea of like, you've taken away something from me by giving him a soul. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, anything really to do with him, even though she sort of talks about him suffering. Um, mm-hmm. It's the effect that his suffering has on her that she cares about. <laughs> um right. And, and of course, for various reasons, a.k.a. Spike eating the family, um, she's not able to, like, have the soul, the, the curse lifted. Um, right, right. Yeah, he sort of eats the, the hostages there. So, um. so, yes. So then we get to the Boxer Rebellion. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing that other people or perhaps some of the same people who had the problem with um, the the romantic relationship um, have talked about is that uh, there seems to be a disconnect then because Mm. thinking way back to season two of Buffy um, Mm -hmm. where you get Whistler sort of Mm -hmm. explaining, uh, you know, what's happening what happened with Angel and how he found Angel uh, mm-hmm. uh, basically destitute, you know, mm-hmm. eating rats and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Apparently people expected that that happened right away. But we... Well, right. <laughs> but we see that, that that's not, not true. That's not the case. That, no, and that's the big... That is the big revelation is there's this period of time where he's participating in, you know, some of the destruction and the vampire sort of lifestyle with his soul, <laughs> which we did not know before. Like, and I mean, that's new information that it doesn't bother me in the sense that I think that's an interesting idea. So I kind of feel like as long as it's interesting, I'm happy to sort of go with whatever sort of re, you know, contextualizing that the writers want to do. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and I mean, I think we've gotten hints of that before because even in um, Are You Now or How You Ever Been, Have You Ever Been, you have him sort of living in the 50s, which is earlier than the Whistler period isn't it yeah because whistler finds him before like recently like like right before buffy moves to sunnydale right so i kind of feel like this idea of this kind of degenerative process of like he gets his soul back and you know the first thing he does is to try to pretend that that never happened (laughs) and like why would he do anything else like he doesn't know anything else he's trying to 
live the way he's been living and do what he's been doing and do what Darla wants him to do. Um, And he does that until he can't anymore. And then he tries to sort of just live this kind of, you know, perfectly practical existence of just exist and don't make any connections and don't talk to anybody until he can't do that anymore. And like, you kind of get this like slowly going further and further down into the gutter, you know, until you get the kind of low point. Right. Um, and I think, I think you even said, did we talk about this when, when they showed the Whistler stuff, it, it's not even necessarily that believable that he would have been living in the gutter all that time anyway. Like, right. Like really for like 200 years, he's been living in the gutter. Like that doesn't seem very likely or very interesting. So um, yeah. I kind of feel like this makes a bit more sense, um, right? You right. know, for the character and for the show, but yeah, yeah, and that's that's basically what Tim Minear says. He said um, he says we we were accused of retconning by the fans who say we all know Angel was living in the streets of New York in the early 1990s when Whistler came to him. So you know, show started in '97. So you know, yeah seven to ten ish years before that is when angel sort of hit his low point um and so Minear goes on to say he says i i believe you know of course that he was at that point but i don't believe he was thrown out of that room in romania by darla in 1898 and has been on the street ever since um Mm. what you'll discover in darla is that he went back to her and he says to her i still believe i can be what i was if you just give me another chance kind of thing so, mm. you know, that's that's his sort of explanation of like what happens between, you know, yeah. eighteen ninety eight and and the nineteen hundred, because because we had you know we saw a different, oh, which I forget which episode it was where we did see Darla sort of like tell him to get over his you know new mm. new conscience and deal with it, um, mm-hmm. but then apparently he comes back and like you said, like it's, you know, he's almost pretending and it's, you know, it, there are, I think sort of literary precursors to that sort of thing. You know, like you think Mm -hmm. of like novels, like maybe like, um, I don't know, maybe like brave new world or something where like you, you Mm -hmm. have a character who's sort of like recently enlightened about something and, you know, Mm -hmm. but still has to live in sort of the society that they know and grew up in and, you know, are sort of horrified by it, but are still sort of undergoing the same mechanical responses to, um, you know, until some point where they can no longer justifiably do that. And, and so you might come up with different coping mechanisms that work better or worse, depending. And, you know, so, you know, 50 years after the Boxer Rebellion, yeah, he's in, uh, you know, a hotel trying to lay as low as possible, but we don't know, what other things he might have done in that intervening you know intervening period where you know he may have been trying other things you know who knows like there's there's potential other things that he could have done you know to uh absolve his conscience or not and Mm -hmm. uh we just we simply don't know we don't have enough things but yeah like i i think you're right like 
the suggestion, at least at this point now, we have sort of at least three data points, right? So we can mm -hmm. we can actually plot a trend. And I think right. I think you're right that that it is a degenerative process over that hundred or so year period. And so, right, you know, okay, like now we know that. Um, and we also, I mean, so you know, 1900, like like that's sort of the definitive time where we get. Um, you know, we, mm -hmm. we get the angel leaving Darla, but, uh, mm -hmm. and, and that brings us, you know, from the mid 1700s, that that's the 150 ish years. Um, right. so, you know, all through right. that, okay. all through that time is where, you know, they were going on their rampage. I mean, there, there's more than a hundred years from London, obviously 1760 to London, 1880, like, you know, mm -hmm. that that's, you know, they talk about, you know, laying waste to Europe kind of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all of that. So um, you can understand, especially if they had an attraction from basically the beginning, why he might want to, at least initially for a couple years, give it another mm -hmm. go, um, right. you know, before. Well, and I think, so to kind of transition to like the, the modern day Darla stuff, mm -hmm. where she's kind of, struggling with having the soul back like it's been this kind of contrast of oh you know Darla has a soul and still acts you know is, is sort of embracing this evil sort of you know her evil ways whereas Angel you know um you know is all about redemption and doing good and all these things but I think what the kind of Angel I guess retcon does is kind of show that that's not they're not so far apart that that for Angel for a while, he kind of seems to have done the same thing of try to still, you know, live like a vampire if he can, you know. Um, I mean, now he still is a vampire. The cases aren't the same, you know, but, you know, that kind of refusal to acknowledge, you know, the the soul that's back in him and you get kind of Darla's you know, angst about, you know, her mortality and all these things that she's feeling that she doesn't want to feel. You can kind of project that backward onto what Angel must have gone through. Um, so I think it buys Darla some sympathy, you know, because it's not just like, well, Angel had this really positive reaction to his soul and, and Darla doesn't. You kind of see, well, you know, he didn't exactly do the right thing. Mm. You know, it took him a really long time, in fact, to start doing the, the right thing. Um, sure. You know, so I think it kind of encourages you to be a little bit more sympathetic towards Darla um, and some of the things that she's saying in this episode. Yeah. Um, so... We're kind of short on time here. To uh, to go through, I want to at least hit uh, Darla in the present day um, because we do kind of get her getting, you know, I guess going through that, an accelerated version of that, like, degeneration process herself, you know? So we saw her come back very sort of confident and her usual sort of powerful and seductive self. And now, 
you know, she's sort of cracking up, I guess is what Holland calls it. Um, and Lindsay even calls it like post-traumatic stress. Um, yeah. But uh, so you get here, you get her like breaking all the mirrors and, you know, in the room so that she doesn't have to see herself um, in the mirror, or at least that's Angel's interpretation. But um, right. I there's the kind of way that, you know, she's broken the mirrors so her hands are bleeding, but there's kind of almost like it almost looks like she might have cut her wrists at first, you know, or at least I thought. So yeah. there's this kind of if she's not actively suicidal, she's maybe implicitly or, you know, heading in that direction. Um, you know, it kind of hints at that idea. Um, yeah. You know, and but you also get her as much as she seems to be kind of hinting at that idea, you also kind of get her talking to Angel about, um, you know, this fear of her own mortality. And that's kind of seems to be what's really getting at her right now. It's not necessarily the memory of all the, you know, pain she's caused and the lives she's taken. It's more this, you know, this cancer that's inside her and that it's all about her time and she's wasting away and everything. Um, which kind of makes sense if that's, you know, unlike, unlike Liam, she wasn't just sort of, you know, attacked and turned into a vampire. You, you had her turn into a vampire as somebody who was dying. And, you know, right. so there's this kind of suggestion that for her, the vampire is the way to escape that, you know, this is sure. that immortality might kind of be the point of it for her. So the fact that that's kind of really what's, bothering her is she says you know i can feel you know she can feel herself decaying moment by moment it's eaten, being eaten away by this thing inside of it so to have a soul i guess is to be human which means you have to die um and that's what she's sort of trying to avoid i guess yeah Anything, I mean, let's see. No, I mean, I think the, the question I always have, too, is like, so she, she's brought back um, mm -hmm. as a human. Does she still have the diseases or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, like what's killing her? So, like, is it is it more than just sort of like the sort of metaphysical, you know, oh, I'm growing older and thus I'm dying, you know, right. is it, is right. it that she's actually feeling herself getting sick too? And so like, mm -hmm. you know, the physical, because she was brought back by magic, you know, was she brought back, um, you know, at a point in her life where she was already mm -hmm. infected with syphilis or whatever, you know, um, right. who, who knows? Like, yeah. Uh, maybe that's part of what she's feeling. And so she really does only have a limited amount of time. Or is it, um, you know, is it that thing of like, she knows what it feels like to be immortal. And so being, mm -hmm. being mortal again, it really is that hideous. Because we don't really have an example. Like we have Angel got his soul back 
but he wasn't made mortal again. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like that, there's a difference. He had the chance to become mortal again. Right. But he didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, like he doesn't even really have the same, like we don't have like another baseline really, mm. you know, by which, you know, it's true that Darla also has her soul back, but it's a soul and a body that she knows is going to die. And that's, right. that's sort of the tension I think with her is that, is that she knows she's going to die. Like if maybe she would have a completely different attitude if she got her soul back and knew she was going to still be immortal, you right. know? Right. In that way, Angel's kind of better off. Like he has yeah the perk, the perk of not being a soulless demon, but also he gets to like, you know, live forever I mean, and be basically almost indestructible. Other than being faced with the horror of all your previous acts as a demon, but you know, other than that, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but then in the same token, you wonder, like, would an immortal Darla with a soul be bothered by any of that? Right. <laughs> um, and and if not, does that does having the soul really matter? <laughs> right. Um, right. You know. So. Uh, and right, and, and, right. In Dar, if if Darla was exactly in Angel's position. Would that make a difference? Would she be embracing this redemption like he would? Not necessarily. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, we we don't. I don't know that we have enough information to say one way or the other. Like it. It. it yeah. I. I really think it's ambiguous, and that it. You know the the gaining of the soul along with being made mortal again does something different we just aren't entirely sure how exactly it is mm-hmm. because she was already different and that's fine. I mean, people are different and she has different background and all of that. Even, I mean, even to the point of being like, you know, what more than a century or something, you know, older than angel mm-hmm. to begin with. So, um, yeah. like, like literally not even just like in vampire years, but like, you know, right. uh, in early 1600, she was, what, at least in her late teens or early 20s. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think we find out exactly how old she is when she's turned. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, late 16th century it would have been when she was born. Like, that's a yeah. far cry from mid-18th century, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. So, <laughs> um, even just personality-wise and all of that, big big difference um mm-hmm. and and you know culture that she was brought up in and whatever right. um right so yeah i mean I, I i i think we've hit all the major things with darla i think i think the continued themes are like she's clearly looking uh she wanted angel to turn her you know, she wants mm-hmm. to, she wants to be immortal again. And so in this way, like, I mean, not to, not to make it too sort of funny or light, um, lighthearted or whatever, but it's kind of like that vampire cult with Chanterelle and, you know, uh, right. the, the, uh, Buffy's friend there who ends up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that like, she's looking you know for the benefits of becoming a vampire and and 
except that she actually knows what happens because she's yeah. been there before and she appears to remember, you know, what it was like. So, you know, given that desire, you know, what is, what does that say about what she might do and how she might act? And also just the fact that like, we sort of know now that she's not particularly uh, tied to Wolfram and Hart. It's just that she's trying to get what she wants from them, just like, right. you know, as, as vice versa, you know, they're trying to get what they want out of her. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she knows that too. She knows she's being used. She kind of calls, you know, Lindsay out on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as long as it suits her purpose, She's also right. using them, and so it's right. you know mutually beneficial. But, um, since you know how far Angel rebuffing her uh, goes against getting her purpose, like does it, you know then it, what other means may she employ, you know, mm-hmm. to get what she wants? Right. We'll, we'll see, I guess. Um, and go ahead. the one the one thing I want to mention with. Well, from at heart, too, I feel like the kind of big point is um, this kind of further layers of plan of trying to figure out exactly what they're doing and what they want to happen. So the idea that yeah. Lindsay isn't in on the full plan, you know, that he's kind of a pawn just like the rest of them, you know, and they kind of Holland lets him, you know, believe, you know, that things are going a certain way because it makes it a more convincing, you know, story for Darla and Angel to sort of draw them together. And, you know, Holland kind of reveals that uh, they don't expect them to, you know, sleep together and turn Angel evil, you know, that they know that that's not going to happen. And, you know, apparently that's not what they were shooting for, or at least not anymore. Maybe that was the plan at some point, but um, they might've sort of readjusted things. Mm. Um, So then Holland says, you know, what do you expect him to do? What he will do, what he must do, save her soul. So, you know, the question then becomes, okay, so how does that suit their agenda? Um, And it kind of occurs to me that you know, we've talked about Angel's moment of bliss not being necessarily, uh, you know, uh, related to, it doesn't have to be related to sex, it could be related to anything which sort of gave him perfect happiness. And I feel like to save Darla's soul would make him quite happy, you know? So I don't know whether that's the plan. It kind of seems like that could be there is just the inherent danger of redemption for Angel that if he ever really, you know, was able to do something that made him really, really happy, could that be a dangerous thing? Um, sure. Yeah. You know, which we haven't really, I haven't really thought about in this whole redemption quest of his, you know, like, could there, could that be dangerous in itself? Like, hmm. is there something which, Angel, you know, by necessity must always be unfulfilled, you know, because otherwise he goes bad, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know whether I'm interpreting 
Holland right or not, but um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, but I think I think you're right. Like we do want to beware that the possibility is. I mean, he like you said, he explicitly says they're not necessarily looking for Darla and Angel to sleep together. So then that opens up what other possibilities could there be mm -hmm. for that for them to achieve whatever plan it is they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, we, we should wrap up. Um, any, any other thoughts about Angel? I mean, a lot of, we talked a lot already just sort of in the flashbacks and, and sort of in relation to Darla even just mm -hmm. now. Um, I mean, he obviously he refuses to turn her into a vampire like him, and mm -hmm. and um, we already know that like he's not feeling particularly romantic towards her. So you know, mm -hmm. what else is there at this point? Like, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I mean, not that he's necessarily going to stop, you know, trying to help her, but like she doesn't want to be helped she or at least mm -hmm. she doesn't want the help that he's willing to give her so right well it seems like there's a kind of parallel to like faith here of like you know angel sort of committed to you know finding these people who refuse to be helped and sort of keep trying and kind of working you know working on them until they kind of give in um and uh you know so i don't know uh i mean and, and he did that for faith even though there wasn't that you know romantic connection with her um you know again i think that kind of is his sort of he's taken that on as his sort of purpose now um so yeah we'll see i mean I don't know whether she'll ever give in to that. I don't know, but Faith did, so maybe that is a hopeful sign. But um, anything else with Cordy or Wesley or Gunn? I mean, no, not not in particular. Like, I mean, it's just they're kind of doing their support stuff. I think this is pretty solidly an Angel and Darla episode. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess the only thing with Wesley is him being this kind of cautionary voice. Like, it seems like he keeps um, being the kind of voice of reason of, like, you know, um, reminding Angel, like, you know, they're probably having you focused on her so that, you know, you're distracted from other things or, you know, suggesting that he and Gunn go do the, the reconnaissance so that, you know, uh, you know, Angel doesn't have to do that himself and then they'll report. So, um, you know, it seems like Wesley is like kind of taking it on himself to put the brakes a bit because Angel's very eager in his wanting to help Darla and uh, Wesley doesn't necessarily trust her. So, you know, yeah, which he kind of did the same thing uh, with faith too. So, yeah, 
Right. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I mean, right. I, I don't have anything to add. So sure. All right. Well, I think we've covered it all then. Cool. All right. Well, then we will be back next week with some more Doctor Who and some more Buffy. All right. See you then. Mm -hmm.